If you've been with us over Sunday nights, you'll know we've been working our way through the story of David. The last two Sunday evenings we took huge chunks of the passage that you find in 2 Samuel and tried to get a kind of overview of the whole of the, the story, the very dramatic story that is told there from 2 Samuel 13 right through to 1 Kings chapter 2. Um, this evening I'd like to take the first of a couple of Sunday evenings where we dip back into all of that and try and unravel a few of the, the incidents in it. So um, you might like to just open your Bibles at Second Samuel 15, which is page 319 um, of the copies of the Bible that's in the pew. It's not the passage we're going to read together. We're going to read a different passage shortly. But um, you'll be able to follow the, the drift of, of what I'm saying here at the beginning. Because my question is, I wonder how he coped with the news. What had he been doing with his life and his time over the past number of years? Had he developed a hobby, a fixation with building new buildings as a legacy to leave behind him? Had he returned to his music and his writing? How had for four years King David not noticed that the the number of people who were coming to seek judgments and seek his advice and his Uh, judgment on the difficult issues they faced in their lives had fallen away? Or was he aware of what was happening at the gate of Jerusalem? Was he aware of the fact that Absalom had established himself there? Did he think, good for you, son, a smart enough move, 10 out of 10 for initiative, and just assume that his own position as king of Israel was unassailable? And why did Ahithophel go with Absalom against the king? He was David's trusted advisor, his counsellor, the person that he took into confidence and sought wisdom and advice from as he made decisions of state. Maybe it's because there are some things people just don't get over easily. Ahithophel had been loyal to David. But perhaps he could never forget what David did to his granddaughter, Bathsheba. To her husband, Uriah. To her father, his son, Eliam. Perhaps watching little Solomon having the run of the palace while Absalom, really no greater a sinner than his father was, had been banned from David's presence, maybe seeing all of that was too much. Was it the hypocrisy that got to him? David, murderer of his granddaughter's husband, banishing his son for murdering his half-brother who had raped his sister, Tamar? Who was David to play holier than now? Or had the relationship with his granddaughter broken down? Was her marriage to David an affront to Ahithophel? Whatever. For many years Ahithophel continued his honourable service to the king, but now for whatever reason he preferred to go with the next in line to the throne, even though, or maybe because, it could mean the extermination of his great-grandson Solomon. Perhaps principle was more important than family. Perhaps it was time to see justice done. Whatever the reason, the knowledge that Ahithophel was with Absalom was no small part of David's quick decision to leave Jerusalem 
Whatever he had been doing with his time over the last four years, David's speed of judgment hadn't left him. He hadn't become incapable of good judgment. He just hadn't been exercising it over the past four years and more. So I wonder how he coped with the news. The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. How does someone become so out of touch with his people? Is it pride? Is it conceit? Is it preoccupation with some self-absorbing interest? Is it just denial? I wonder how he coped with the news. The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. I wonder how he reacted. Who doesn't have a sense of suspicion that there's no smoke without fire in these things? When we hear of Tony Blair's closest aide being arrested for suspicion of perverting the course of justice, who doesn't immediately think there's no smoke without fire? Is that how the people felt when they saw David leave Jerusalem? Was there amongst some of them a sense that he had it coming? Had Absalom so won the hearts of the men of Israel that only the foreigners who had become part of David's court remained loyal? After all, the Carathites, the Pelathites, and the Gittites weren't likely to be retained in a neo-Israelite court. And I think verse 30 of chapter 15 is the powerful image of the whole of this section. And it says, David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. Gone are the trappings of power. Gone are the weapons of war on which to rely. Sounds a bit like a prisoner being escorted to the court as we see them on the six o'clock news so often with their heads covered. David is ushered out of Jerusalem. And the descent into the Kidron Valley and the rise up the Mount of Olives, not that far away, becomes a pilgrimage of humility and shame. It becomes almost like a kind of wake. And so often in the past, that journey made in reverse from the Mount of Olives down through the Kidron Valley and up in through the gates of Jerusalem would have been a victory parade with a great celebration. But this time we see him humbling himself under the curses of Shemai in chapter 16. And we know that he didn't feel that it was time for Joab's brother, the greatest of the three great warriors of Israel, to lop off Shemai's head. But rather, as it says in verse 12 of chapter 16, leave him alone, let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will see my distress and repay me with good for the cursing I am receiving today. And how did he cope when they set up camp? Verse 14 of chapter 16, the king and all the people with him arrived at their destination exhausted. As the bodyguards positioned themselves around his tent, when his advisors, having discussed the strategy, had left for the evening, and the messengers had been dispatched to the various loyal remnants, what went through his mind? What recriminations? 
What self-criticism. What anxieties filled his heart. Well, perhaps we get something of an insight if we turn to Psalm 3. You'll find Psalm 3 on page 544. There are many people who say that this, like many of the Psalms with David's name on it, weren't really written by him. Some people say they were attributed to him looking back, but there's really no good reason not to take this at face value and to see David in his tent, his closest advisors departed, now on his own reflecting and trying to pray and echoing these sentiments which have been recorded for us. O Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you are a shield around me, O Lord. You bestow glory on me and lift up my head. To the Lord I cry aloud and he answers me from his holy hill. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear the tens of thousands drawn up against me on every side. Arise, O Lord. Deliver me, O my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. There seems to be a progression in the psalm, with it running in couplets, the way it's divided up here in the New International Version, with verses 1 and 2 being a kind of complaint about his enemies, 3 and 4 expressing confidence that God will hear, 5 and 6 echoing a sense of trust in God, and 7 and 8 focusing on a, on a prayer of victory. I'd like to summarize it slightly differently using the silas as breaks in the passage, which you see marked in the text there. The sila is a bit of a mystery. Um, Nobody's really quite sure what it is. Is it a musical interlude that was written there so that people would know to take a break in the music? Or was it an opportunity for the congregation to respond? Was it a moment of reflection? Was it a kind of amen? Think about this. Never quite sure, but they're useful breaks. So I'd like to take the psalm for a few minutes in three sections and summarize it slightly differently. Just say that in verses 1 and 2, we see David looking down. In verses 3 and 4, we see David looking up. And in verses 5 to 8, we see David looking around. That movement of down and up and around. First of all, verses 1 and 2, David looking down. As David reflects on his circumstances, he's overwhelmed. Hebrew experts point out that the refrain of many, captured in the New International Version translation, expresses this sentiment very well and reflects it well. It's many, many, many are saying God will not deliver him. What a mess. And perhaps that answers my question. What were the people saying as David and his court passed by on the road down the Kidron Valley and up the Mount of Olives and beyond, nodding their heads and saying, God will not deliver him. Perhaps that is what Ahithophel was saying to Absalom. God will not deliver him. Not this time. It's certainly a kind of summary of what Shammai was saying in 16 verse 8. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has handed the kingdom over to your son Absalom. You could summarize that as, God will not deliver you. Not this time. 
It was certainly playing on David's mind. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in that kind of situation where circumstances in life, it's a bit like David's many, 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 or at least it feels that way, are saying, you've blown it. You're finished. You've fouled up. Have you ever been in that situation where there's a myriad voices in your head saying, you fool, you've blown it, you've made a mess, there's no way back? I'm sure some of you have. The disaster will not have been quite on the scale of the national disaster this is, I'm sure. But a personal crisis eats at you more than all the political crisis in Downing Street ever will, or Iraq, or anywhere else. When it's your crisis... It just can't get any bigger. And most of us at some time sit on the edge of the bed, as I imagine David, and hear the voices saying to us, many, many, many say, God will not deliver you this time. Which takes us to verses 3 and 4 because something happens here and instead of simply looking down and reflecting and thinking on this and hearing those voices, something changes in verses 3 and 4. And David seems to look up. And he seems to look up with a renewed confidence in God. And I suppose one of the things I've been puzzling about in this is it just his faith that gives rise to this affirmation of confidence that enables him to look up. Well, it might be. But actually, I'm not so sure that it's just his faith in that moment. It could well be that David is simply reflecting on the day. Of course, there was the news that came, that the hearts of the men of Israel had gone to Absalom. Of course, there was the news that his trusted advisor had gone to Absalom. Of course, there was the hurried exit, the shame, Shammai screaming abuse. But there was also... As we see in verse 18 of 2 Samuel 15, the faithful bodyguard, all of them, to a man, standing with David. Abishai and Joab, maybe not his bosom friends, but certainly not with Absalom, still with him. There were some of the people who wept. 2 Samuel 15:23 that tells us that there were people who wept as they saw the king pass. Not everyone was hurling abuse. There were those great men, Zadok and Abathar. We read about them in verse 24 of chapter 15 of 2 Samuel. The two priests willing to go back to Jerusalem and work from the inside on David's behalf. What loyalty. What courage. And there were their sons, Ahimaaz and Jonathan, also willing to go back with their fathers. To act as messengers between Jerusalem under Absalom's control and David in exile. There was Hushai, the archite, willing to go back as an advisor and risk his life. There was even that rogue Ziba. He turned up with donkeys and food just when they needed it. Okay. So he's arrived at his destination exhausted. Okay, so it's true. Many, many, many are saying that God will not deliver him. But when he's able to lift his head and look up for a moment at the community around him, 
And think about the trusted allies back in the city and the guards outside. And maybe also at the times in the desert in the past when he had very little support. And Saul was chasing him with the army. And it was so much a part of his life for so many years that his faith is renewed. And so he looks up and he takes a view of the situation. And considers God's goodness to him in the past. And says, you are a shield around me, O Lord. You bestow glory on me and lift up my head. And David resolves that whatever they say, he will cry aloud to the Lord. I think it's probably all of those things that work into his faith at that moment that give him the capacity to not simply look down in despair as he considers the reality of a situation, but also with renewed confidence to look up. One of the reasons private reading of scripture and private prayer is important is that they can be for us moments of light in the darkness. One of the reasons why being here or being in church and corporate worship is important because they can become for us in moments of darkness, moments of enlightenment. One of the reasons that friendship and fellowship is important in the body of Christ is that we hear different voices speak about our circumstances. I wonder, was it a wife, a friend, a counsellor, a bodyguard, who in conversation with David reflected on the events of the day to help him see that while many, many, many were saying that God would not deliver him, the evidence was pointed in the other direction. We'll never know. And truthfully, it's not important. The process of the change in his thinking is what's helpful. He looks up from the fear. He lifts his head from his shame. He looks up from the distress and he sees the grace of God and is once again able to make an affirmation of faith. We need that help and grace. We need each other. There are times when you have to stick your pride in your pocket and ask for help. Time when you turn to the scriptures and listen to the other human stories that bear witness to the grace and the help of God in times of need. Listen to Peter as he tells us that despite the tears in Gethsemane and the silence of the heavens, At a moment of great distress, Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And then there's verses 5 to 8 of the psalm, which I'd want to summarize simply as looking around, because that's how I see it happening. I, I just see him looking down in his despair and reflecting. I see him, whether being helped to do it or not, reflecting on what's been going on and what's happened in the past and looking up with renewed faith in God. And I kind of see him in my own mind getting up off the edge of his bed. I know there's no biblical warrant for this. I imagine him getting up off the edge of his bed, one of those cheap aluminium camp beds probably that they were carrying because they're light. And he looks around his tent and he says, there's not much more I can do. It's time to go to bed. I shouldn't fear what's going on. I'm going to go to bed. God, it's time for you to get up. Because I can't deal with this. Arise, O Lord. 
Deliver me, O my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be upon your people, whatever happens to me. May your blessings be upon those loyal and faithful men, Zadok and Abathar. May their lives be preserved as Absalom takes the city. May the people with me know your blessing. It's time for me to rest. I lie down and sleep. Years ago, I remember hearing a reading a story about Martin Luther. It came. It was reported in a, a journal called Leadership, which uh, I find tremendously helpful in particularly the early years of ministry. And it was a story about Martin Luther, and apparently the story goes that there were times when Martin Luther would go to the window of his bedroom and he would open the windows at night before he would go to bed and retire. And he would look out on, on the town or in the city and he would look at the challenges that were facing them at this time of huge turmoil and upheaval and the challenges that were facing them in the life of the emerging churches of the Reformation. And he would say, God, is it my church or your church? It's your church. I'm going to bed. Good night, God. And I must say, I found that incredibly helpful and liberating as a young pastor who stupidly and foolishly believed the whole future of the world and the kingdom of God depended on whether I was doing enough and doing it well enough. And I think there's a sense of that with David. I don't think this is carelessness. I don't think David is saying, I'm going to lie down and sleep. There's far too much at stake here. His own life is at stake. His entire family's lives are at stake. So I don't think there's an act of carelessness here. I think there is simply a recognition that the implications of faith in a sovereign God and in a God of grace means that there is the opportunity to leave it with God. I wish it wasn't such a struggle always to remember this. I wish it wasn't such a struggle sometimes to put it into practice. But I think that's part of the practical implications of Psalm 3. That there comes a time when we have been looking down and by the grace of God are able to look up in a fresh way to God and we look around at our circumstances and we say, I need to just get on and rest or do whatever I have to do. God, it's time for you to wake and to deal with this situation for me. Whether or not the psalm was written during those nights of being on the run or later on reflection isn't really important. What's important about Psalm 3 is the movement in the psalm and the exposure of the human struggle that we see there because it sets real fear, real fear, in the context of faith. And they often, whether we like it or not, they often exist together. And the challenge for us as we look at this this evening is to make the application in our own lives, to learn this rhythm of when we are looking down, to learn to look up. And then to look around in the light of what we know about God and let our world become reordered in the context of our faith. I've set this psalm in the context of evening. The idea of David that night when they're exhausted and they've set up their camp and I'm sitting on the edge of his aluminium camp bed. It's interesting actually that this is known as a morning psalm traditionally. Psalms 3 and 4 are taken together. And Psalm 3 is used as a morning psalm, and Psalm 4 is used as an evening psalm. Um, part of Psalm 4 um, has uh, those words, uh, I will lie down and sleep in peace for you, O Lord. You alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Verse 8. 
But actually I think they're both useful evening psalms. Because I think that's what was happening in Psalm 3. In the stress of life, they are great words to hear as the darkness sets in. For night is often the worst. When the mind races, the heart throbs and anxiety takes hold. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. So now you know what lies behind Psalm 3. Now you know how it works. You know from the last couple of weeks that the man to whom it is attributed was no super saint. You know that this is arising out of a disaster of his own making. So take heart. Whatever challenges you face today or may face in the future. As you look down, learn to look up and look around with fresh hope and fresh trust. And may it be a great blessing. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, for this opportunity to take some time this evening just to reflect on this portion of scripture and to think about the context and to think about the story that lies behind it and the issues that lie behind it. For all of that we give you thanks. What we ask for more than anything else is that work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our lives that makes this a reality for us in our daily lives. That your word become something more than just a helpful reflection on a Sunday evening, but begins to shape us more and encourage us and strengthen us and equip us more for what we face today and what lies ahead tomorrow. Lord, for your goodness and your grace that is demonstrated throughout Scripture, that while in justice, You will speak a word of judgment, so you will do so with your people in mercy and with compassion. We pray that we might know that mercy and compassion in our own lives and in our own circumstances. And that like David, our hearts and our voices might be tuned to praise you as we prove your goodness. Father, grant that we go into the days of this week knowing your grace and your strength, the presence and help of the Holy Spirit, and in a fresh way the knowledge of the love of Christ in our hearts, in whose name we pray. Amen.